0: Welcome to Willoughby Hills. I'm Heath Rosella. New episode of The Pod. I am so excited to have you here. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Today's guests are Richard Frischman and B. Brian Foster. Rich is a photographer and award-winning photojournalist. And Brian is a professor and an author. And together they have this great new book out. It's called Ghosts of Segregation, American Racism, Hidden in Plain Sight. And I got to tell you, this was one of the most moving books that I've read in a while. I got a, a physical copy in the mail, which I don't often do anymore. When I interview authors, I often just ask for a PDF and read it on a Kindle. Or if I'm able to get a library copy, I will do that. In this case, I felt like it was important to really physically hold the book, engage with it, look at it, think about it. And boy, am I glad I did. And I hope you will do the same. It is really... Really a great work. And it's a jumping off point for a great conversation today with Rich and Brian. So this book started as a photo project, and uh, you'll hear about the origins of it today. But the idea was that there are a lot of places in our daily world, in our our built environment, that showcase the history of American racism. And sometimes we don't even realize it, you know? Sometimes it's a, a side door on a theater that we might think is a fire exit or a stage door or something, But at one time, it actually would have been the segregated entrance where black people or or other people of color would have had to enter to go up to an upper balcony to be seated in a movie theater, let's say. Sometimes it's a wall in a restaurant that divides a dining room. Maybe you think it's, you know, the smoking, non-smoking section or something innocuous like that, but it was actually the white and the colored dining rooms. So this book is a photo collection of a lot of those types of things. It's also photos of places where significant events happened. Little Rock Central High School, one of the sites of of school integration, the site where Dr. King was killed in Memphis, but more recently, the sites of where George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Trevon Martin were murdered. All of these photos are in this book, and they exist in a way that is just so normal, right? They are mundane, everyday places. That we would all pass by in our cities, and our small towns, whatever it is, and not give a second thought. And I think the point is that lots of significant things happened in these places, but also lots of small daily aggressions. So that's kind of one part of the book. That's Rich's contribution. And we're going to talk to Rich today about the photography piece. But then weaving throughout the photos are these beautiful essays written by B. Brian Foster and Brian just has such a beautiful way of expressing the black experience in America his own experience growing up and finding his place within his family within his community and within this country and really opening our eyes to all of these issues and i think that's an important thing too i'm going to call it out as the interviews happening as well but Brian is a younger black man He's around my age. Rich is an older white guy. He's about my father's age. So the two of them come at this content from very different places from a lived experience standpoint. And you're going to hear that from my standpoint, too, in this conversation today. I don't always come to this uh, conversation as informed as I would like to be or as aware of these issues. Whereas for Brian and, and for black people across the country... This is their everyday reality from the moment that they are born until the moment that they die. Racism, white supremacy, they are in the background of nearly every lived experience. And I think, you know, this conversation, I didn't plan for it to be part of Black History Month, but here we are right in the middle of February in Black History Month. And I think it's important, especially for those of us that didn't have to live with that sense of discrimination or racism, to really look at a work like this, really take it in, and really realize how different life can be for our neighbors and our friends and the people in our community to realize that Black history isn't just history. It's still ongoing. These photos of the site of the death of George Floyd, for example, prove that. This is still ongoing violence that is happening in our communities. And so, yes, this book is largely about segregation, the kind of Jim Crow to civil rights period. But it also goes back to slavery and it also goes all the way up to modern day. And there is a very consistent through line that, again, I think in white America we look at differently. I think white people see these events as past and when something happens like George Floyd getting killed by police, we think that's an anomaly. We say, well, that, that's already happened. Well, Obama was president, so racism doesn't exist anymore. And I think this book, this work shows that that's not the case. This isn't a blip. This is a continuation. This is a long line of the same issue that we have been dealing with for 400 years, right? Something like that in this country. And it's on all of us to figure out, how do we move through it? How do we move past it? And I think for people like me, white Americans, white male Americans, that are going to listen to a conversation like this, it is about listening. It's about understanding that experience that we could never know, but that is so top of mind for other people in this country. It's about reading works like this, engaging with works like this, it's about listening to the conversations that we're going to have today and more like this. And then it's about action. Because when I look at these photos and read these essays, I realize that there is still a lot of work to go. There is still a lot of work to be done. And I want to see that change. Maybe that's naive. Maybe, maybe that's crazy to think, okay, we've had this problem for 400 years. In my lifetime, it's going to be different. But I think that is the goal for every white American, should be to say, holy shit, this is a problem. How can I fix it? How can I be a part of the solution? So it's a very moving conversation today. It's a great work. I hope you will check out Ghosts of Segregation, American Racism, Hidden in Plain Sight. And Before we get to the conversation, let me just remind you, I do have a newsletter that I publish twice a week. It comes out every Wednesday and every Sunday. Go to HeathRosella.com slash newsletter to get on the list there. You will also get alerted to every new podcast episode. And if you want to support this podcast, the work that I do here, you can upgrade to a paying membership. Not only will you help support this great work, but you will also get early access to the podcast. HeathRosella.com slash newsletter. All right, let's get into it. Here it is, My Conversation with Richard Frischman and B. Brian Foster. So I was saying before we recorded, but I want to officially say it to both of you on tape. Um, I loved the book. Uh, It's very moving, very good work. And uh, I I just I'm so appreciative of your time today. And I'm I'm happy to have you here on the podcast. And welcome to both of you. Thank you for having
1: us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. Happy to be here to talk about the work.
0: Of course, it's great stuff, and there's a lot a lot of questions, a lot I want to dive into. I think Rich, I want to start first with you um, because this was your project first, as I understand it. Can you just kind of walk me through the origin of it and sort of where the idea came from and and what the the early process was for you?
2: Well, for the last decade, most of my work has been built around photographing places and the sort of history that's embodied in. Places and what places say about our society. And initially, I was doing a rather upbeat, nostalgic view of Americana. Uh But as I progressed about five years into it, or maybe three years into it, I came to the conclusion that it was a luxury for me to have nostalgia. Mm. Uh, The tenor of the times was just upsetting me. The sense that things that I had hoped were resolved in terms of economic and racial and ethnic equity were becoming problematic. It was quite evident, the resurgence in nativist conversation, and that it was okay to say things that I would never say
0: Is this kind of the election year, like twenty sixteen that time or
2: yeah, though I've been trying to skirt that, but between us, nobody else is listening except you and Brian, right? <laughs> yeah, there was that element. It was actually very specific. That night of the election, I lost my love of Americana mm. and felt like I need to do something to stand up and yell, no, this isn't right. I didn't know what that was initially, uh, but I reflected on it for close to a year, looking for some way to do something that had social significance. I grew up in the era of the birth of the modern civil rights movement. Sure. and Emmett Till was one of the first incidents that I have any recollection of, and it was vague. But I thought, I'm going to explore how that history is embedded in our environment and all around us. I started finding traces of that legacy, and I stopped shooting the funny stuff. I stopped shooting the nostalgic stuff, and I started looking at the serious stuff. So that was 2016. I've shot the very first picture But the project didn't really get underway until 2017 or so. Gotcha. Now I I look at the places around us and see stories that are embedded. Many of them are not pleasant. So that's how the project began.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting in looking at some of the photos. If you were to to flip through the book and not look at the captions and not have any context— I think there is still a lot of Americana in there, right? There's, there's drive-ins and uh, and movie theaters and things like that. But it's looking one layer deeper, I guess, at what's actually the history of these places. And that's what, what I thought was, was really moving.
2: What fascinated me from the start was just how mundane and banal most of these places appeared. Yeah. Of course— that had a lot to do with my ignorance and and assumptions that I'd make and that I think most people make. That picture of Ed's drive-in, before I started this project, I wouldn't have noticed that it it might have some other significance, but there it is.
1: Yeah, I'll jump in just real quick to say, I I find it really interesting, the language that we're using so far, you know, to your point, Heath, about If you just look at the photos and don't mind the captions or the essays, it does look like Americana. And I know that many folks would take issue with this claim. uh, But my position is that the historical record suggests that racism is Americana, Mm. Uh, mundane and everyday and taken for granted and sometimes, oftentimes, invisible certainly for folks who are in privileged and empowered positions. Yeah. And so I find that language interesting and, and I think really telling for kind of the, the fundamental idea of the book.
0: Yeah. And and Brian, I mean, that's a, that's a perfect point. And for people that are just listening to this, I mean, I think it's fair to point out rich, you and I are, are both white men, Brian, you're a black man. So we are coming to this from very different perspectives and kind of assumptions and just, you know, the world we grew up around. Um, Brian, I do want to to get to you as well and sort of understand because your essays kind of help weave the story together and um complement Rich's photography. Um I'm curious sort of how you got involved in the project and what was it that that made you want to be a part of this?
1: yeah, I, I tell the story in a few different places in the text when the project came on my radar, you know, again, to draw on the language that we've used so far, Rich mentioned nostalgia. You know, in a lot of ways I was surrounded by that. I was in my home in Mississippi. It was pandemic sort of times, early in the pandemic. And like some folks that I've talked to kind of in my own circles, I had kind of developed an interest in um I had a bunch of photographs yeah. that my grandmother had in her lifetime kind of accumulated and kept of all corners of my family's history, hundreds and hundreds of photos. And so I had decided that I was going to order them and kind of build out an archive. And in the midst of this, the photos are displayed everywhere in the back room of the house. I had a conversation with David Black about the possibility of the project. And over the course, maybe it's of a few weeks, I end up getting a letter from Rich and, uh, and Rich and I have a conversation. You know, I thought about, and now I'm kind of jumping time to when I decided that I would kind of come on board and be a part of the project. I thought of a few different ways of of doing it. I knew I had twenty thousand words, is what was told to me, and the thing that I wanted the most was to like not replicate what was already out in the world. Clint mm-hmm. Smith and how the word is passed, for example, was already out. A really, for me, like really important and brilliantly done kind of piece of work that relies on a lot of reporting and we get a lot of sort of names and dates and that sort of thing. And um uh, Money Perry's South to America, similarly, though personal, just like how the word is passed, kind of was more from a perspective of let me impart some historical information. Yeah. And so I kind of decided that, especially given the fact that we had the captions that would provide the historical context, I'm wondering what might be useful, what, you know, in what ways my voice be beneficial to the project. And I think informed by where my head was at the time, I'm thinking about my family's history and my relationship to it and its relationship to American history. And so that is kind of how I settled on taking a, a little bit more of a personal approach. And, you know, I think I'll just say this and then we can we can go wherever the conversation goes You know, I jotted down Rich's comment, nostalgia, as sort of a luxury. And, you know, for for me, a word that I would use is that nostalgia is a privilege. Mm. And the way that I think about privilege is, or sort of the underside of privilege, is responsibility. Uh, And so for me, nostalgia translated to a deep and lifelong responsibility to share and tell and keep the stories of Black communities. My focus is on Black communities in the American South. And so that is what I saw my duty as, is to tell some stories that share about the realities, the kind of emotional experience, the everyday experience of the histories that Rich captured kind of in these various environments.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting sort of how you both are so different but there's so much kind of parallel thinking between you two. And I I want to touch on that just sort of, you know, we talked about race, but also, I mean, there's probably what, 30 years or so between you. I mean, generationally, you're different as well. Like, what did you guys find about working together that surprised you? Or maybe, you know, just how, how aligned were you? Or when you clashed, you know, what came of that? I'm curious.
1: Rich, if I can jump in first, sure. I'll say that in general, when it comes to thinking about racism, American racism, and certainly storytelling and producing work that addresses, you know, this history, yeah, I tend to be skeptical. I tend to be skeptical of white folks. Sure. And so that was kind of my starting point. It was one of skepticism. And I just remember in every conversation that I had with Rich and the letter that he sent, I say this in the acknowledgments in the book. My grandmother taught me to be serious about, for better or for worse, to be serious about the act of keeping, is how I describe what she did, mm-hmm. photos and obituaries and so forth. She taught me that by how she did it, yeah. by how she lived. I watched her get up and do the same thing every morning. She said her prayers. She cooked her breakfast on the weekends. We looked through the photo albums and so forth and so on. That is inside of me, seriousness, when you should be serious and i just felt that seriousness from rich early on and so yeah, so i can i could ramble but you know when i talk about this partnership and collaboration it was eminently important it was in, you know an importance to on the highest order that you know rich being a white man a white jewish man like that this is you know a recognition that this was serious work and so that for me is the primary kind of thing throughout the collaboration is that I just have a lot of admiration for the seriousness um, that Rich has gone about, you know, going about the work.
2: Thank you, Brian. I don't think we've ever clashed, have we? Nah. I think that <laughs> the very first time we talked, I knew that I was coming with uh, a need and I was asking you if you were willing to fill it. Essentially, that's how it worked. You know, I realize I can take some really good photographs, but I can't tell anything about the story of racism like somebody who endured it or uh, a black person's voice was required, I felt. And I took the advice of uh, several people who mentioned Brian to me and I read his book, I Don't Like the Blues. I could hear his voice, and I really was moved by the fact that here's a guy who actually thinks about history and place as being entwined as if there are spirits. And that's how I feel, that there are spirits held in uh, like an energy field or something in places where all these people either made a stand or celebrated or... Suffered. It wasn't apparent at the very beginning, but I think after our first road trip to Clarksdale, I felt like I had a real partner that he understood what I was thinking and more, much more. And I I learned from Brian. I'll give an example. And that first road trip, I mentioned to Brian how I think I was trying to impress him with how liberal I was. I said that (laughs) as a child... I didn't realize race existed and I remembered the first time uh, one of my dad's associates came in the house and I'm embarrassed to say this now, but I I said to Vandy was his name, Vandy Hester, I said, Vandy, you're a Negro. I was like, I never thought anything about skin color and I thought that was good. Brian conveyed that that was a luxury that Black people didn't have, that you know really soon, really young, in this society, that it's not an even playing field. Yeah, I took that to heart. I'm embarrassed I was ever that naive, but I'm not that naive now.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's a whole learning process. And that was something I I wanted to ask you about, too, was that there are moments— in both the words and the photos, where there's overlap. And like you mentioned, your road trip together. There's also obviously work, Rich, that you had done prior to bringing Brian on board. Like the scenes from Clarksdale or Oxford or Chicago, Charlottesville. How much of that did you collaborate on? How much was it one reacting to the other or just, you know serendipity that pieces kind of came together that you both had these commonalities.
1: Yeah, I would say quickly, it, it, it was probably like a pretty even mixture. When I joined the project, Rich already had some photos and the photos that he had informed kind of my early thinking about the project. And Rich drove across the country again after I was on board and I had shared with him some potential sites, some potential places that he might go to photograph Some of those included sites in Mississippi and Virginia, the two places that I have been spending the most time um, over the course of, of the collaboration. And then, you know, the traces essay, you know, sort of it draws from some field work that I had done back in 2014 and 15. And so there's a pretty even mix of material that I had already been working on and ideas that I that I had already been thinking through photos that he had already taken And then once the collaboration materialized, both his work informed, you know, much of the writing. And then I had some ideas about some additional sites that he might include.
2: Brian educated me and uh, inspired me from the get-go, from that first time in Clarksdale. I think there are so many pictures in the book that I wouldn't have shot if I hadn't been partnered with Brian. I think you told me, Brian, I believe, anyhow, I'll give you credit for like all the time that I spent in Bowley, Oklahoma and out in Kansas looking for exoduster stories It was because of Brian. It was hard. It was stuff that I would never have seen, but Brian kind of elevated everything I was doing. And I think those stories that are often neglected, are important to tell the the courage of all these people who left the South not just in the so called great or long migration, but uh who ventured out to Homestead on the prairie. I mean that yeah. I I'd never heard that. And I thought it's a remarkable bit of courage that
1: we should honor. And I think that's where we meet is the reverence that we have for these are ugly, terrible histories. If we get into too many details, we probably both will get emotional, right? So so like very heavy and sort of an important task. You know, we both have this emphasis on keeping and sharing these stories. That's what the project is about. The book is a byproduct. Yeah. You sort of, my life's work is about sharing and telling and keeping the stories of black folks in America. Like I've said, my focus is on the South, um, but you can't talk about the South. We get this from so many different people. Dr. Xandria Robinson, who's at Georgetown, Dr. Imani Perry, who was so gracious to offer her voice by way of the Forward, and I could keep going. You can't talk about the South without also talking about the exodusters, those black folks who, in the late 19th century and early early 20th century, went west, and the migrators who went from rural South to urban South in Chicago and Detroit and New York. I just really like to underscore that the reason why this collaboration, from my perspective, worked—and by work, I just mean—Rich has shared that he learned from the process. I certainly learned some things from the process. And I think that the work that we've produced, I think Ghosts of Segregation, I have critiques. I think there are places that it could be better and more effective, but I kind of feel like it works. And I feel like it works because above all, Rich and I see the task, the importance. It's not about writing a book. It's not about collaborating with somebody that's different. It's about telling a story and history that is critical to understanding both the place where we find ourselves and the time in which we find ourselves. And so just, I, you know, I, I, it feels like an important, like a, a useful time to to kind of emphasize that.
0: Yeah, no, totally. And, and I want to ask about that on kind of the, the preservation piece. I mean, obviously, a lot of these stories and, and photos and things, Are meant to be covered up, right? There are, I mean, there were neighborhoods that were burned that are blocked off now. And, you know, like it's, it's all weeds or cemeteries where, you know, trees are overgrown and things. There's a part of the history that's attempted to have been completely erased. There's also things that are still out there. In broad daylight. I mean, we talk about in the book, you know, the Confederate monuments and things like that. But also, even just you know, marquees on on bus stations and th- you know, the colored waiting room etched in the stone is still up there on full display. And there's a part of me that understands the argument that hey, we need to understand this history to learn from it and to keep moving past it. There's a part of me that looks at that too and says, well, are we glorifying things, or are there going to be you know white supremacists that are going to celebrate that? for both of you like where do you come down on that line between preservation and you know moving past it or or wanting to not not erase what happened but erase the trace of it almost right
1: we live in a time now where there is the very deliberate attempts across the country at every level of society in terms of elected officials on down to special interest groups and, you know, parent teacher associations or whatever the proper word is, where folks are actively trying to erase and mute and kind of reconfigure what the historical record actually says. And so for me, if that's the reality, for me, the only thing to do is tell these stories in as many ways as possible, as loudly as I possibly can. I think there are there's calls for celebration throughout the, throughout the book. How is it that a, popu- that a whole population of people that was forcibly brought here and then for decades, for decades, whether it's federal policy or, you know, what's happening kind of more in, like closer to the ground in terms of at grocery stores and at city halls, and people are trying to vote and so forth and so on. How is it that a people that was subjected to that? Not only is still here, but has found all of these ways to make beautiful communities and beautiful art and so forth and so on. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, I, I am so I, I, w- I remember when I first read the forward that Dr. Perry, that Imani wrote and she she picked up on something that I didn't really know how clear it was. Maybe this jumps off the page for folks who read it. Um, she said that there is there's love. There's a heavy, thick sense of love. Uh, in the stories throughout the book. And so to the point about preservation and celebration, I understand the question. I think it's an important sort of dynamic to talk around. For me, preservation is a responsibility in light of the realities that I think anybody with eyes and ears must acknowledge um, unless you're being disingenuous. And the celebration point, plenty to celebrate. Even in a book called "Ghosts of Segregation," where that that features sites where people have been murdered in the most brutal ways—children and women and, and so forth—and so to me, there's there's a lot of there's a lot to celebrate in in that you know what kind of people survives that and makes beauty in light of that. Yeah, you know that's just that that's how I start to think about it. Rich, I don't know if you have if you have something to add.
2: Well, I ask myself every time I hear of one of the places I've photographed being leveled, I I ask, is that relieving anybody's pain or suffering? Or is it just alleviating guilt and shame? Mm. And that colored waiting room etching at the Macon transit station that you mentioned, Heath, that was really controversial in in that community. And a lot of people wanted to take it down. But I know that a lot of people wanted to retain it because it's a lesson. It's an object lesson. And when those are gone, it'll be a lot easier to deny that it ever happened. Mm. I'd be all for removing those that create pain in the oppressed community that was the targeted initially. But if it's just to cover up our own, societal guilt that's promulgating a lie. Yeah. So as far as preservation goes, that's where I fall. And I want to just say in one of the things I, I find so moving about Brian's contribution to this collaboration is that he brings me inside his head and in his heart, he brings the invites the readers to have a different viewpoint. Uh, and and it is full of love and analysis. I mean, the pictures are devoid of people and uh, they can be interpreted as cold. But in my mind, they're all about people. And Brian's voice really emphasizes that.
0: Yeah, I mean, Brian, there was something that you wrote that I wanted to ask you about in particular, or that I guess I'll just tell you my reaction to it too. And that was just this idea that we think of memory as an objective thing and a factual thing that like, okay, I did this thing and here's my memory of it. But you likened memory to imagination and talked about kind of generational memory almost that like through hearing the stories from our parents, our grandparents, we feel like we've lived through a lot of these things and, And I felt that in looking at the pictures, too. There were a lot of places, you know, I I had a job for a long time where I got to travel the country and uh, it was um, part of a TV crew. So, you know, we filmed in a lot of places like I spent half a day on that bridge in Chattanooga (laughs) shooting a stand up and not having any clue of the history of it and looking at and saying, I can picture myself standing right there, but I can also picture myself at, you know, the sites of, of some of these terrible things that were way before my time, you know, assassinations or or um, lynchings or things like that. So, yeah, Brian, I just that that piece movement. I'm curious if you have more thoughts around, you know, memory and, and imagination.
1: Yeah. I, and so I say often I'm a pragmatist. And so, I you know, I'm a professor. I've read a lot. I've thought a lot about ideas, theories and so forth. At the beginning and end of the day, I'm a pragmatist. I wake up in a bed like most people. My feet land on the ground when I get out like most people. And more to the point, I've got family that I care a lot about. Mama, daddy, grandma, grandpa, and so forth. And when it comes to the history of Black people in the U.S., I don't know, man. That's the history of my people. And so the beginning point for me is... This is that idea of love and desire. The memory thing for me begins with the deep desire to understand and relate to the things, the real things, the experiences, what happened on Monday and Tuesday from one week to the next, from one year to the next, the things that happened to and the things that were done by in response to my people. And from that point, it's like, yeah, like there's a deep desire to Relate to the history, and so you read and learn the history, and then you know. Okay, grandma was born at this time, and grandpa was born at this time. Some people are fortunate enough to have had conversations with their folks about these histories, Um, and so you learn kind of the historical context of their lives. And then there are all these gaps. In some in some cases, it's you want to trace your family lineage. Um, You want to know who your great 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 so forth and so on. And what you find, and I would say I would offer as I as I kind of touch on indoors, these gaps are a function of this same history. Mm. Um, it ain't no coincidence that so many people, that so many black folks, it's on the record, the literary record. So many people have written and thought about, you know, these attempts to recover the stories of their families, and they get to a certain point and there is nothing left. There's nothing on the record. And so in these gaps, and you know, I talk about Marianne Hirsch's work on post-memory in the very first essay, Memories, I could also have talked about Dr. Sadia Hartman's idea of critical fabulation, I think is is what she calls it. And it is this effort that oftentimes requires some imagination, but not like imagination from nowhere. Let me just imagine up a story of how it might've been. It's informed, you know, it's critical, right? The language is, is purposeful. And so, yeah, you know, I think for me, the beginning point is a desire to understand the history and experiences and perspectives of my people. My people starts with like my people, like my mama, nil, my grandma, nil, and so forth. Right. And by extension, the communities that produce them and the communities that those communities are connected to. And very quickly, we get to talking about black folks as a population in the U S and by definition. And I do think as a product of All of the ways that racism has structured and rampaged the lives of black folks, there are gaps in that history. And, you know, I quote the Facebook post uh, from my friend and, you know, just peerless writer, Kiese Lehman, about the place of imagination in the efforts. When I'm talking about the efforts of black folks to remember, there has to be some imagination and among the, the you know, maybe there are many reasons why I think one of them is that there are these gaps that we long for, desire again, I think is important, that we really want to feel so that we can more fully understand.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's an interesting line that I think the book walks as well between kind of personal stories and the stories of the people that witness things and kind of what the actual recorded accounts are. And it, it just kind of left me <laughs> with this, you know, I, I grew up in this this world of like, you want facts on the weather, you go to NOAA, or you want facts on population, you go to the census, or what? like, that the government is the end-all be-all of information. And there's so many times where that's not the case, and there's a deliberate attempt to cover up the truth, to protect politicians or sheriffs or, you know, Supreme Court justices. It, I mean, like, it, it goes all the way to the top. For for both of you in, in researching this and telling these stories, trying to rely on, you know, I guess, contemporary records, contemporaneous records at the time and personal stories of witnesses to like, how did you figure out sort of how to find truth between all those different potentially competing ideas?
2: Well, I would seek independent verification on things that I didn't know. Of course, I don't know what I don't know. I'm thinking of one particular incident in Kilgore, Texas. Most of the places I photographed, either Brian had mentioned or I had found through research looking at the Equal Justice Initiatives website or org, or a whole variety of historical preservation sites run by each state. I drove down the main street in Kilgore, Texas, the very first day that I was fully shooting this project. It was March 20th of 2018, and I'd been in Kilgore before, Uh and I'd seen the Texan Theater, but uh, just like Brian was saying earlier, it didn't strike me what that really was. I had not noticed those stairs going up the side of the theater until that March 18th evening. And I started asking people around Kilgore, if they knew what those stairs were and was that a colored entrance and using the vernacular of the day. And also the fact that in a lot of places, the colored entrance was for everybody who wasn't white. Yeah. Nobody owned up to it. I, and I had just the sense of embarrassment, uh, I did ultimately track down a journalist. Sorry, I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but he had grown up in or had lived in Kilgore in the 50s and up to the mid-60s. And he said, oh, no, that is the colored entrance. I mean, I had friends who had to go that way. So often you have to dig to find out the truth.
1: If I can jump in, I, I think um, you go to such and sh- such for the weather and you go to such and such for population statistics. What happens when the official record like, has either purposefully or by happenstance come to exclude certain histories? Yeah. Um, there's a photo in the book, Rich, I can't remember the title that we settled on, but it's of a brick wall. It looks kind of gray in the book. Of so a brick it wall is. from my hometown. The brick is wall is associated with Siggers High School. It's, a high, it's an all black high school where black folks in this town in Northeast Mississippi attended roughly between like 1940 and 1970 before the schools in Mississippi got the memo about integration. And I, I remember that, uh, you know, there's a photo of my mom wearing this, this shirt from Siggers High School. This is some time ago, maybe in the last couple of years when I saw it and I got to wondering about the school that my dad went to. And so I went searching for anything that I could find. I found a resolution that had been passed recently. But aside from that, nothing. And so what did I do? I went and talked to folks who had attended seizures. Uh And to me, this is an important point about that, you know, an important point that Rich just made and that I'm kind of echoing. So many of the people who have firsthand experiences or firsthand knowledge of these histories are still alive. Why? Because the history ain't that long ago. Yeah, That's the point of that very first essay in the book. And so and it's through these interviews, the method is called oral history, where you find out that it actually ain't just happenstance that there aren't that many class composites or trophies right. or other documentation of what was happening at the school. What you learn is that when the school is integrated, and Siggers High School became the integrated Shannon Elementary School, and, and so forth, that all of the material culture of the school it just kind of disappeared, or as they say, it was trashed and done away And and there's a whole body of literature around the trickiness of official sources, especially when we're thinking about the histories of marginalized people who, by definition, oftentimes have not been included in the decisions that are made around the official sources. So, yeah, I think, you know, the answer, like a practical answer is you got to kind of get in the weeds and on the ground and go talk to folks. And it's a longer conversation about, you know, longer ago histories where it's not so easy to find somebody to talk to. Uh, But I do think the practical answer is you got, you got to go out and talk and be in the places and among the people because they know, Right. Like they know who better to to tell the story of a history than somebody lived.
0: Yeah. I mean, on that point about history and and sort of how long or or not long ago it was, there are photos in the book of, you know, where where Homer Plessy was was arrested, which ultimately became the Plessy versus Ferguson uh, separate but equal Supreme Court trial. But there's also the places where Breonna Taylor, Trevon Martin, uh, George Floyd were murdered. There is this sense that, you know, in some of the more recent things that, you know, I certainly remember clear as day and, you know, some that just happened a year or, you know, a couple of years ago, like that, that that's modern history, I guess. And it's interesting, I guess, just the juxtaposition between something from the late 1800s, let's say, with with Plessy, the, you know, 1950s segregation and 2020 racial violence, what were you thinking, I guess, in terms of just sort of that that spectrum of history? and i and I guess maybe disabusing people of the idea that that segregation has a definitive beginning and end point, maybe
2: well, if if I might jump in early on in the project, I, I'd already started calling it ghosts of segregation. I was chastised because saying ghosts implies that something's dead mm. and, I knew it wasn't, and I was being reminded that I was sort of implying that it was just by the title. I made it a point to start going out and photographing more contemporaneous places. And one in St. Landry Parish in uh, Louisiana, I had read in the news about a bunch of black churches that were firebombed, and. I had already photographed the Sixteenth Street Baptist Church, and thought this is this is a, an important parallel, yeah. and it's happening today. This I went out in April of 2019 and photographed this church that had been bombed just weeks before, yeah. and I continued to look at places that show the existence of. Inequities and police violence and things that we live with and don't always acknowledge, where Breonna Taylor was murdered in her sleep or yeah. in her bed, George Floyd. I wanted to memorialize those incidents that are today.
1: I think the opposite about ghosts. A ghost is a sign that something is alive. If we believe, mm-hmm. like if it, whether we actually believe in ghosts or we are going along with the idea of ghosts. A ghost is something that is alive, just Mm -hmm. maybe not quite like in the form of what it used to be. But for a ghost to be a ghost, like there's an essence, right? right? Like if there is a a ghost of my grandmother here, there must be an essence of her in it. And I do think that that actually offers a way to think about racism and that, Maybe there are some elements of racism past. What are we calling racism? The system of policies and the things that businesses and other institutions, healthcare, education and so forth have done. And then we get down to the realm of individual actions. If we call that system of things, when it at scale and in patterned ways affects the lives of certain and specific populations of people, if we call that racism. It looked a certain kind of way in 1875, 1842. I'm just making up numbers, yeah, yeah. Um, not necessarily tied to specific events. It looked a certain way in those times because American society looked a certain way in those times. And even if and as society changes, you know, whether it's technology or other things, all of the ways that a place changes over time. The argument goes or the idea goes, and I think the photos demonstrate this, um, the essence, meaning th- that, that there's a population of people who have been disadvantaged or punished or oppressed or exposed to a certain type of violence over and over and over again from coast to coast and so forth. That's the essence of what racism is. To me, I feel like the, the collection does a really effective job a really effective job of, of demonstrating that. And I think the title, you know, I understand the point about ghosts implying that thing is, uh, but to, for me, the title works. Yeah,
0: it, it's true. If there wasn't something there, you wouldn't call it a ghost. Like, it would be gone. Ghost means it's still, I, I love that, Brian. Rich, did you have something? I'm sorry.
2: I just, it's one of the things that I love about Brian is that he, he reminds do that, me Rich. of things and You are great, Brian. You know, I'm just really, this project is made important because Brian worked with me and put his voice on these pages and reminding me about ghosts. I mean, I really do agree with Brian that they are alive. I just don't think to say it. When I'm out shooting, I feel the presence of those people and the power of the incident. And I, I don't want these things to be repeated.
0: Yeah. And I mean, on that, I, I first of all, I could talk to you both all day. I mean, this is just, this is an amazing conversation we're having. And I, I, again, I'm so thankful for your work just because it became a springboard for this conversation, but to wrap up for today, and maybe we can do this again another time. Um, the book opens with this notion that you don't want you don't want it to be a passive thing for the reader. You don't want them to kind of look through it and say okay, that was nice and move on with their life. I think the intent behind the art was you want it to move people. You want them to feel something. You want them to take action. What does that actually look like for both of you? What 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 is the response to the art?
1: I think it's important to say like a book is not a revolution. For me in order to address the realities and impacts of racism in American society, people have to do stuff. It yeah. takes for me, it takes either the actions and decisions of folks in positions of power or it takes consistent organizing on the part of folks who are not. And so, my goal with the book is not to like dismantle the system of to that that ain't how it works. At least that's not my belief. My goal is that I think on on one hand is is that folks feel something. I don't know where that fits into the big equation of things, but I want folks to feel something. Perhaps it's if black folks read it, like Dr. Perry uh, uh, articulates in the forward. Maybe there's a feeling of love and compassion for a history that is hard and terrible, but that has like pockets of beauty and resilience and so forth you know i've had i i, I shared essays with various you know and play in various places and with various people in the kind of um, lead up to hitting sin for the final time and some folks were made uncomfortable and some folks were a little angry at certain the the way that i turned certain phrases and for me that's the point too if it make you mad good yeah. if it make you uncomfortable good If it compels you to to action in some sort of way, all the better. I think more practically, if it stirs up a curiosity, just whether it's of a place that is in close proximity to where you live or work, and you go learn a little bit more about it, to me, that's the kind of idea. You know, if maybe there are some folks that this is the straw, okay, now I'm going to go and be a part of some collective thing that's already happening for me, that's a part of the idea. And at the end of the day, and I think, Rich, you articulate this in the photographer's note at the front end and in other places where you've written about the project, the photos you see, Rich, as evidence. And so at the very least, we have captured how many photos are in the collection, Rich? 120 what? Oh, about 125 are in the book. Wow. 125 pieces of evidence of real histories. What's the evidence that these are real histories? Because these are not places that we made up. These are places across the country. And so at the very least, we've got a book of evidence. And for me, the stories are evidence, too, that like the histories of the places that they affect real people in real ways beyond what we can always kind of see and make out. And so that's kind of how I think about, you know, what that, that question, which I think is an important one for a project. Of kind of what does it look like? That that's how I think about it.
2: That says it all. I think what you said, Brian, is I I can't
1: convey it any better than that. And I think too, at least the way that I think about this, the book is not the end. The book is not the the book comes out of a commitment to a type of work. Rich is committed to a type of work. I am committed to a type of work. We put our heads together um drawing from the work that we do to produce something that hopefully people will you know engage with but you know i see the conversations that we have about the book to also be an extension of it so yeah i just i wanted to add that oh, you know just so cuz i think it can be tempting especially kind of in some of the spaces that i kind of move in and between you know a book is a celebratory thing you you wrote the book you finished the book you can hold it in your hands um, And I, you know, we do take pride in the work. It's to, it, it is a big deal that we got to the finish line, and we can hold the evidence in our hands. But the book ain't the goal. Yeah. The book isn't the goal. And so I just I do like to emphasize that it's a way for us to enter into a conversation that we have been having and thinking about in our own work. Now we can enter into it in kind of a different way and have conversations like this one. Yeah, I, I appreciate from from having written a book and kind of gone through this process before, Heath, I appreciate that you you engage it's clear that you engage with it. And that and, and to me, you know, to the extent that this was a good conversation and I agree, I think it I think it has been. I think a part of that is that you actually engaged with it in a serious way. And so I appreciate you for that.
0: Yeah, no, thank you. And and it's interesting just to, to wrap it up, what you were saying about sort of it's it's part of a journey like, it's interesting, just, you know, Brian, you, you bring a lot of other writers in and kind of reference their work and you both talk about what inspired your work. Like there's for me, having finished the book, a whole reading list of like, Ooh, that's interesting. I want to go there next, but there's also your work, you know, like I'd read Heather McGee a year or two ago, and then to see the photos of the Clarksdale pool and be like, Oh, that's the vision. Like, I know this story now I'm here you know and just depending on where you are in that journey like it might be this might be illustrating something for you or it might be the beginning of something or you know just it's interesting how books and and other art can just kind of be a jumping off point for other places so um, thank you both.
1: Thank you.
2: Thank you Pete and Brian what a pleasure
1: Appreciate you Rich. Thank you
0: Richard Frischman be Brian Foster. Wow. What an amazing conversation. As I said at the end there, I could have talked to them for hours. I mean, I feel like we barely scratched the surface in that 45 minutes or whatever it was. And I would love to just talk with them both at length. I love what Brian said about the seriousness that they both bring to this work. I think that is very important. And I think at the end of the day, the love piece, which I think you heard at the end there, I think there is deep love and respect between these two men and for the work that they do. And ultimately, like if you get involved in anti-racism work, if you get involved in liberation work, it is about love. It's about recognizing your own humanity and the humanity in those around you and wanting everybody to be able to reach that potential. Check out Ghosts of Segregation, American Racism, Hidden in Plain Sight, Richard Frischman, B. Brian Foster. Amazing, amazing book. It is going to be out on my coffee table. If you come visit me, you can flip through it and read it and enjoy it. And I encourage all of you to have a copy in your house as well. It is a heavy work to sit with, but an important work and one that, uh, that was really moving for me and I hope it will be for you as well. As a reminder, I publish newsletters every Wednesday and every Sunday. You can go to heathrasala.com slash newsletter to get on the list, get that in your inbox. You will also get every new podcast episode. And if you want to support this podcast, upgrade to a paying membership, heathrasala.com slash newsletter. I'm at Heathrasala on all your social platforms. Thank you. Give me a follow over there. Leave a review here. Five stars on Apple. Write what you're thinking. And uh, I'll see you again in two weeks.
1: Thank you for being here today. Stay safe.